This is Paul Adamson, and welcome to In Conversation, the regular podcast of my online magazine, Encompass. I chat informally with personalities from a wide variety of backgrounds on a wide variety of subjects. If you like this podcast, you can go to the magazine's website, encompass-europe.com, or any of the main platforms for free access to all the podcasts to date. I hope you enjoy this conversation. My guest is Stefano Sanino. Stefano Sanino is the Secretary General of the European External Action Service. Welcome to the podcast, Stefano. Hi, Paul. You've been uh, in this new position since uh, April of, of last year, and throughout the existence of the AES, um, there's been no shortage of commentary and analysis of its activities, of its performance. When you took over the job back in April of last year, what was your own personal analysis of how the AES was, was working? Well, first of all, one has to say that the, uh, the EIS is 10 years old, so it's not too old. Huh? It's a relatively uh, a young creation and still, uh, uh, I would say, in the making. So when I, uh, when I arrived, I knew the place from outside. I had n never really worked within uh, the EIS. And I found a house which was uh, um, very much focused on uh, um, um, crisis management, on, let's say, the classical elements of, um, of foreign policy, um, and with a very well-developed uh, um, defense and military dimension. I thought that what we had to do was maybe to rebalance a little bit more and to uh, look at what is the European agenda, as I call it, that is to say all the policies that are being developed by the European Union and all the external dimension of the internal policies of the EU. So I found a place with uh, a lot of good professionals, uh, um, still a little bit uh, soul-searching in terms of identity and with some elements that needed to be rebalanced. You say the ES is quite a relatively new invention, which is true. But do you, but you, it's no secret that a lot of people out there, politicians, other diplomats, starting to to, to question what the ES is worth, and what it's for, what it's what it's achieved. Do you think that that that, that kind of uh, assessment is, is appropriate? Is that fair or is it unjustified? Well, I mean, I um, I think that we have to ask ourselves which is the role of foreign policy nowadays. It's not just about the uh, EIS, it's about all our foreign ministries. And I mean, not only in Europe, also um, outside Europe. Because if we are with the idea that foreign policy means solving the crisis in Syria or the crisis in Libya, and if you don't solve it, then uh, you are, there is no sense for you to be there, then, I mean, we are questioning not the IS, we are questioning foreign policy as a whole. So I think that... Uh, um, when it comes to the EIS, it's something more specific because we are a strange beast in a way, with many heads, uh, heads at the same time. Because we have on one side that we are looking at the, the, uh, what is happening, as I was saying before, with the external dimension of the internal policy, so the coordination of the policy of the EU. Then you are working at the uh, issue of concerning crisis management. And then you are looking at the uh, political and military and security uh, uh, dimension and even uh, one component of intelligence. So there are many things that are merged into uh, uh, this structure. And the real challenge, I think, for us is how you can bring together all these different elements and being able to uh, have an impact, knowing that uh, you can, we collectively, as European Union, can have an impact only if we all work together. It's not only what the, U the EIS is doing, but also what the member states are doing, what the council is doing, what the commission is doing, what the 
com, com, let's say, all of us together are doing. You're being very diplomatic, obviously, but I think it's no secret that uh, many people think that the EAS doesn't have many friends or many allies or many supporters uh, in institutions, that means with the European Commission, uh, the Council, but also in member states. Do you, do you and, and your political boss, Joseph Borrell, the high representative, the former Spanish foreign minister, occasionally feel that you're the kind of the fall guy, the scapegoat for, for things not working as, as well as they might? I don't know. I mean, I, um, I don't like thinking that uh, uh, everybody needs a scapegoat and uh, uh, choosing the EIS as a scapegoat for what is not uh, being achieved collectively. Um, um, but I repeat once again, the, uh, uh, what we can do, what the EIS has to do, uh, is to uh, uh, generate the capacity to uh, 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 being at the center of a system where all these different components uh, uh, get together. Somehow we have the only one for our own specificity that we can uh, sit with the same legitimacy, I would say, and I don't know, you can say lack of legitimacy in the Council and in the Commission. I can be part of the one and part of the other because as a matter of fact, we have this dichotomy and, and this uh, uh, double-hearted nature that allows us to, uh, um, to be uh, at the center of the two systems. And I would say on the top of that, that we are not uh, a bearer of a, um, an institutional agenda. Being not an institution ourselves, we do not, how to say, grow our turf, uh, in a yeah. way. Our success is how much we can bring everybody to work together. Some would say that the, the job of high representative, whoever, whoever occupies the job, um, is, is, is challenging, it's difficult. Some would even say, frankly, it's impossible. There's so many dossiers to follow, uh, so much travel to, to un undertake. You can't sit in your office in Brussels all day in this job, that's for sure. But also, as we all know, the high representative is also a senior member of the European Commission. Isn't, isn't there a fundamental problem in the, in the design and, and the structure of the, the portfolio, the job description, if you like, of the high representative? Um, I, I, once again, I mean, I think that if, uh, if it is mission impossible, then uh, <laughs> you wouldn't find anybody to accept the job, eh? because I mean, you would only be a sort of crazy person <laughs> if you get the job that you think it's impossible to, to, uh, to perform. Um, it is difficult, there's no doubt about that, and it's true, I mean, uh, we are speaking about, always we speak about double head, eh? because yeah. the council and the commission, but as a matter of fact, I mean, apart this, uh, uh, he's also chairing the, uh, uh, the Foreign Affairs Council. Mm -hmm. And as you said, he's a senior representative uh, in, uh, in of the country that the com where he comes mm -hmm. from in the Commission. So you have many things to do at the same time. But that's why I mean, it is important, how to say, to create a system where you are not alone doing this job. Um, what we are trying to, what uh, Borrell has already started doing, and we are doing even more in a much more structured way, is all to involve much more the foreign ministers in uh, the work that he's doing. So uh, um, he has already delegated, for example, mandated uh, uh, better uh, the, the Finnish foreign minister, Havisto, to uh, uh, travel to the Horn of Africa, to Ethiopia uh, for, the crisis, for the crisis in Tigray. He has asked the uh, uh, Swedish foreign minister to travel to Yemen. Um, he's asking a group of ministers uh, uh, to uh, travel to the Caucasus. And I mean, uh, all this is helping to, uh, let's say, to share the burden 
and I would say also to create more general ownership on, uh, on foreign policy. And then now I see that, which is the interesting part of the story, that many foreign ministers are asking us, since they are going to one country or another, if they could bring, um, let's say, some more specific messages, if I can say so, from the European Union in order to strengthen their uh, role and the role that they, they can play. So I think it's... Um, it's starting to work more in this direction, and I would go even broader than that in the sense that uh, foreign policy is uh, traditionally it's foreign minister staff, but as it is now, foreign policy covers much more than mm. just the uh, foreign policy area. And so the real challenge is how to bring all these elements together, how to, well, you can have foreign policy in climate or in, uh, in the digital or in migration, uh, all areas which are very relevant for the European Union and where you really need to uh, uh, bring all these elements into a sort of coherent framework. Well, this delegation you talk about uh, to uh, member state foreign ministries and other ministries as you broaden the definition and scope of foreign policy in the 21st century, is that happening quite easily? Uh, are member state ministers happy to take on some of the the, the workload of high representative, or the, uh, does it create jealousy? Does it create uh, confusion? Because there's no, there's, there's less clarity about who's in charge and who's doing what. Or is, actually, is it actually pr helping and pr producing results? I think it is helping. I mean, I think that yeah, I have to say uh, uh, it is true that our system is complex. But it is also true that uh, it's not unreadable. I mean, and certainly when it comes to uh, um, foreign policy actors, they are uh, well aware of how we work and uh, the, uh, the way we work. So I think that from that point of view, uh, this is on the contrary, uh, sh sharing the burden, creating more ownership, uh, and uh, um, giving us a better capacity uh, to uh, project uh, our uh, interests, um, uh, our work, our activity, uh, our image outside. So I, I would say that from all points of view, uh, uh, it's positive vis-a-vis -vis third countries, but it's also positive internally. It's not that I, I think, I hope that there are no jealousies or uh, um, no misunderstandings. Um, we have tried, how to say, to make it clear that somehow the mandate is given by the high representative. Our structure, so the External Action Service, is supporting and, and helping uh, the ministers in uh, the perform performing their missions. Our delegation on the ground are uh, being at their side. And I think that it's, honestly, as I can see, it is a win-win. Well, as you know, one of the main reasons given why EU foreign security policy is not more impactful is this requirement of unanimity more or less across the, the board, if, as far as I can see, correct me if I'm wrong. And much more could be done if member states didn't uh, occasionally or maybe regularly uh, put down a veto on something. You know exactly the examples I'm talking about. We can talk about them if we have time. I mean, quite recently, Heiko Maas, the German foreign minister, uh, said we need to move away from unanimity to majority voting, and he's not the only one to have said that, but he's maybe the most recent example, and obviously a very senior politician from a major member state. Do you see any, any chance of that situation changing from unanimity to majority voting? Not an easy task, eh, to, be, uh, to be very honest, in the sense that um, it is true that there is a real problem, and because it is true that, I mean, um, uh, there are 
um, at a certain moment, um, um, different sensitivities. I can use an expression which uh, um, uh, Wolfgang Hischinger uh, uh, used once, saying that the work of the uh, EIS at the end of the day uh, is that of mettre uh, l'église au milieu de village. So it's to find a sort of middle ground between the different positions around the table. And I think that it's what we are doing, it's what we do, it's what we are doing, and what we will continue to do. The real problem is that uh, um, if, you are, if you are no longer in the village, and you start leaving mm -hmm. another village, and then it's more difficult, because then where do you put the church? Between the two villages, it's impossible. So we need to be able, and I think that this is the effort that we need to do, and it's our effort, but also on the efforts of the, of the member states, to be able to stay within the borders of mm -hmm. the village, huh? that we are all recognizing that we are part of the same borders. And then within that context, again, it's, it has been the story of the European Union, foreign policy is not a different, uh, different issue, to find a sort of common ground that is uh, acceptable for, uh, for everybody. So that's the, uh, that's the point. That said, uh, um, uh, clearly, if you want to stay outside the village on some specific uh, uh, issues, there are several ways why, uh, to do that. I mean, uh, for example, you can have uh, constructive abstention. Right. You can say, I disagree with, uh, with this. I think that, um, uh, but at the same time, I recognize that all the others are in agreement, and hence, I... I will not uh, go against, but I will state that uh, I'm in disagreement with that. So you can have ways to, uh, to do that. And then you have, let's say otherwise, the more institutional ways to overcome the problem, which is the, uh, the, the fact that you define a policy at unanimity, and then once the, the European Council has decided that, you can, in the context of this policy, decide that qualified majority specific measures that are taken within that context. So you have, let's say, the possibility of not, let's say, blocking the, uh, uh, the issue. The point uh, is to, to see if you have the political will not to block. But sh surely the political <laughs> reality, uh, Stefano, to push you on this a bit, is that in recent times, uh, Hungary, to name the member state has, has it seems to have developed a habit of uh, putting down its veto on blocking uh, collective communiques on whether it's Middle East or, or, or Russia. Is that, do you think, going to be a regular uh, uh, occurrence or will there be ways around that? It must be very frustrating for other member states and the service which you had with Joseph Burrell to know that maybe all your good work will ultimately lead to, to, to nothing because Hungary puts down a veto. I don't want to, I mean, I don't want to uh, say uh, neither to uh, um, ostracize or to, uh, let's say, point the finger. I mean, it's uh, decisions are taken, uh, uh, let's say, on the basis of political considerations, uh, and we all do that. So, I mean, uh, also from that point of view, even if you disagree, I mean, we have to respect, let's say, the, uh, uh, this kind of process. Now, uh, I repeat once again, our work is that of trying to uh, create the conditions for this not to happen. And uh, I think that on the side of some member states, there should be a, a, a political uh, attitude of understanding that at a certain point, if all the others uh, do agree on a certain policy, there is always a way to uh, uh, indicate your, uh, the fact that you are not in agreement, but not stopping uh, the, uh, the, uh, the policy of the other 26. 
that's it again. I mean, I think that the, the dialogue is important. The idea of bringing all this at the table uh, of the council is important. And that's what we will, uh, we will need to do. Okay, let's maybe develop a bit more this point you mentioned just now about, about delegation, uh, which is linked, of course, to your, your very valid point that foreign security policy in the modern age is more than just classic traditional foreign security policy. So we talked about delegation to uh, national ministries, member state ministries, ministries. What about delegation to other members of the European Commission? How, how is that working? As I understand it, the High Representative has the authority to, to delegate if he sees fit. Uh, certain aspects of policy implementation to colleagues in the, in the College of Commissioners. Is that working and, is, and how can it be further improved? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I would say uh, it's working m maybe in a more pragmatic way, yeah? because I mean, uh, um, uh, commissioners who are in charge of specific policies uh, uh, have also themselves developed their own uh, um, uh, capacity uh, uh, to work with, uh, with third countries. Um, I don't know, I can think about migration, for example, we're working very well with the colleagues of the GHOME, where the, uh, um, uh, the Commissioner for Home Affairs is um, uh, traveling to, uh, I mean, she's been in Libya, uh, Tunisia, Morocco, and, uh, Turkey, uh, talking about migration and the external dimension of migration. Um, uh, the same is true for uh, uh, other policies. What is important uh, is that uh, all these policies are, let's say, uh, uh, developed in a coherent framework, because otherwise you run the risk that you see only one part of the story and you don't see the entirety of the relations with the third countries. There, is a, there are several mechanisms. First of all, the Commission is a collegial uh, body, hence they are sitting every uh, week together and they are talking about all uh, these kind of things. There is, a, uh, let's say, a, a, the cluster of Commission external relations that is meeting regularly, informally, I would say, in, and, uh, and discussing a number of issues. And then there is a more formal mechanism of coordination, which is covering different areas, which is the Group of Commission for Stronger Europe. So one of the, uh, uh, let's say, of the clusters that has been created uh, uh, by President von der Leyen, and which is chaired by the, uh, uh, the High Representative, the HRVP, and Vice President, and where also all the other colleagues may join. Uh, there are some that are fixed, there are the, 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 the so-called RELEX commissioners, or the Commission for uh, External uh, Relations, external relations uh, Dimension, but then there are also others that may come in according to the topics that you're dealing, to the specific issues that you're de developing. And this is another way of, let's say, creating a common understanding and common basis of how to do it. And then in that context, then commissioners can also take on board one part of the uh, uh, of the responsibility and of the task, and let's say bring to the overall coherence to uh, uh, of the file. For the benefit of our, our listeners, I should point out that Stefano, before taking on this job, you were obviously a senior diplomat for Italy in in, in Madrid, for example. You've also been a senior commission official in, in different departments in the European Commission, high um, representative here for your country for the European Union. So you've you've been around for a while. In your judgment. Um, is the current president of the European Commission and the current, current president of the European Council uh, more interested in foreign security policy than their, their predecessors and therefore trying to maybe take occupy some of the territory that normally would be pre preserved of the high representative? Maybe the first part is true in the sense that it is true that both President von der Leyen and President Michel are very uh, um, uh, interested in the external dimension, the foreign policy dimension of the European Union. 
Um, I honestly I do not agree with the uh, the second point in the sense that once again I mean I think that it would be a mistake to imagine that the uh, uh, the, the, the HRVP is the only person that within the European Union can speak and do foreign policy. There are certainly let's say. I don't like the word too much, but let's say there are some prerogatives. I don't like prerogatives. I think that our work should be more result-oriented than prerogative-oriented. Let's say that he has some responsibility right. eh, in terms of the treaty and in terms of also the, uh, the legal acts that are establishing the, the, the external action service, in terms of promoting and how to say, uh, uh, having a lead in, uh, in certain process. He has to ensure the coherence of the external dimension of the uh, European Union. He has the lead certainly in a common foreign security uh, uh, policy and in, in, uh, in, common for, in common security and defense policy, but this does not mean that he's the only one that mm. can do foreign policy or is authorized to speak about foreign policy. Otherwise, we would, let's say, we would create a sort of false uh, understanding of the issue. It's, uh, I would say, this is not a zero-sum game. It's not the fact that if uh, the president of the commission, the president of the council are more involved in foreign policy, then he's less involved in foreign policy. There are different levels. Both the presidents represent the European Union, each of them for their own area of respective responsibility at their level. And the high representative does it at their level. I mean, if, if we start saying that they cannot do foreign policy, then we should say that also the member states could not do foreign policy because it's, there is only one single foreign policy of the European Union, and it's not the case. In, in terms of the, the Brussels phrase toolbox uh, that uh, the service has at its disposal, um, sanctions, we could talk about many different aspects or parts of this toolbox, but I'd like to ask you something about sanctions. First of all, how, in your view, how effective are the sanctions that the EU chooses to impose and, and what, how they could, they could they be improved? But also linked to that, the other side of maybe the equation, when. The, the most obvious example, of course, is the United States when they impose, in effect, extraterritorial sanctions. Um, what is the impact, from you, in your view, on 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 the EU, and how how could that kind of um, dynamic be be modernized, should we say, or be be reformed? Well, I mean, two different things. I mean, um, sanctions in itself. I think it's true. It's developing. It it has become. It has become already. Eh? It's not becoming. It has become already a very uh, relevant component of our foreign policy. Eh? And that's and that's a fact, in a way. In our vision, in European vision, sanctions are not in uh, an end in itself, but they are end to. Uh, they are means to an end in yeah. the sense they are, I'd say. Uh, um, manifesting uh, uh, the fact that we are in disagreement with certain policy and we are putting pressure on that specific uh, uh, country in order to change their behavior and change the way they are, they are acting. So it's not, let's say, a completely, it cannot be seen in complete isolation. But I understand that, again, it is becoming much more visible and much more, I would say, uh, uh, um, uh, strong also in itself. And is also the reason why progressively we are, we as uh, external action service, we are growing in, in this area. Uh, mm. the, uh, for example, the uh, approval of the global uh, human rights sanction regime, no, which has been mm. uh, agreed uh, recently, um, uh, is giving us, a, let's say, I would say, a special responsibility. And the first act, the first uh, list of uh, uh, persons that were uh, uh, sanctions under this new regime were presented, was a proposal presented by the High Representative. 
right. was the first time that we were using, let's say, one uh, say possibility which is given uh, by the uh, by the legal acts, but that we had never used before because it was seen more as a sort of responsibility of member states. So there is a shift also from that point of view. And I think that progressively, I hope that, uh, and that's really the bottom line concerning the, uh, the EIS, that uh, the uh, member states on one hand and the commission on the other are trusting us as an honest broker in a number of things. And as someone that uh, not having, as I was saying before, a sort of institutional interest can be more, let's say, equal, even, balanced in, uh, in presenting uh, uh, proposals. So that's the, uh, one, one, um, the, the first question. On the extraterritoriality of US sanctions, this is an issue that we are trying to discuss, uh, we, have this, we have and we're still discussing with the United States, not an easy one. Um, we are making a point uh, uh, in the dialogue with, for example, that we have developed with, um, that we have started with the United States on China, was part of the discussion. It's, it is going to be part of the discussion uh, during the summit. Um, if I would tell you that uh, uh, we are on the same page with US, um, <laughs> I wouldn't be uh, <laughs> honest in the sense that we are, there are still differences from that point of view. But it's important that uh, uh, we are telling very openly uh, 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 our American friends and allies that there are limits to, uh, uh, let's say, uh, uh, the kind of economic countermeasures that they are taking vis-a-vis -vis third countries. Right? This is an issue that I hope that one day we will manage to, uh, uh, to solve, but we are not yet there. Okay, uh, a final question then, Stefano. It's, it's about Brexit. You won't be surprised to hear me uh, mentioning <laughs> Brexit. Um, the impact of the departure of the UK from the EU on foreign security policy, EU's foreign security policy. Um, in broad terms, what has been the impact in, in your view? What will be the impact? Do you see signs that this so-called E3 formation of France, Germany and the UK will, 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 will go beyond the, the current area of, uh, of activity, which is basically Iran? Uh, and do you see any prospect that the UK will change its mind in the medium term, at least, of going beyond this re resistance to any kind of institutionalized uh, collaboration or cooperation with the EU on foreign security policy? Well, a big question to finish off on. Well, I think that the, uh, uh, the, uh, the dust has not been settled <laughs> yet. I mean, in the sense that we are still, still in, a sort, in, a, in a moment which is not easy eh, in mm. our relations with, uh, with the UK. And, uh, and, and we see it on, on uh, almost daily basis, uh, I would say. Uh, it's not, it, it has not been easy. I mean, I think that from both sides, it has been a sort of difficult decision that had to be taken. Um, we are trying to rationalize all this and to, I would say, uh, uh, to turn uh, uh, this expression, which I think is very good, saying that the uh, UK has left the European Union, but not Europe. Yeah. So it is still uh, uh, part of, let's say, uh, uh, this world. Uh, that still it's a like-minded partner, that still we are sharing uh, the same view of the world and the same objectives. I have to say that still I have a lot of uh, good colleagues uh, with which we work very well, and I have to say that the, 
for example, what we have done working on the solution of the problem of the uh, um, agreement for the settlement of the, our delegation in London mm. has also been approved that, that with goodwill and, uh, and good faith, there are a number of things that, uh, that can be done. So I think that we will need to, uh, to wait a little bit to make it sure that the, the overall uh, uh, relations with the countries goes into, uh, with the UK goes into a, a different perspective. Uh, but I'm confident that in the future we will be in a much better place and we will be able to do m many more things uh, um, uh, with them. And it is important, it's been always been our point since the very beginning, to keep the unity of the European Union when it comes to the, uh, uh, to the relations with the UK, and that includes also the uh, foreign policy dimension. And on the E3, do you think that'll be the? Are you are you suspicious that the UK will be pushing this E3 uh, format in other areas of foreign security policy, or are you more relaxed about that? Uh, normally, you say that it took uh, uh, two to tango. In this case, it would uh, take three to tango. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, we have to leave it there. Stefano Sanino, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for the pleasure.